Hi everybody, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. This is part the third of The Truth About Ayn Rand. No cheating! Make sure that you go back and watch the last two. These are common criticisms of Ayn Rand, and uh, I will, of course, in part four, put my own specific criticisms to her um, approach in philosophy. Okay, so just because critical thinking, Socratic method, and the trivium are not particularly taught or understood these days, Let's look at how one can criticize uh, another person's ideas. So there's basically two forms of criticism. Number one, ah, civilized. Number two, oh, barbaric. Um, so first, the civilized one is you examine the um, axioms, the essential building blocks of the argument. And you can, if you can overturn them without using them, then you have decimated someone's philosophy. So if I say to you, language is meaningless, well, I'm detonating my own statement. It's a self-detonating argument or axiom because I'm using the fact that language has meaning to try and communicate that language has no meaning. So you can look for self-detonating statements at the basis of philosophy, something like self-ownership is impossible. And then you can rebut that, but you're using and exercising control over your own body to make the arguments to rebut the arguments made by someone else, in other words, the effects of their actions and their self-control, so that doesn't work. You do not exist. Uh, that, of course, is a self-detonating statement because I'm referring to someone who I say does not exist. Um, reality is subjective. Well, I'm using the objective properties of reality, sound waves, vision, light, and so on to make that argument. Truth is subjective. Well, of course, if it's subjective, it's not truth. And uh, of course, if I'm saying truth is subjective, I'm creating a universal truth statement that universal truth statements do not exist. These are all self-detonating uh, statements. Fairly easy to demolish a lot of uh, modern relativistic nonsense with this sort of stuff. But uh, so this is how you can criticize. They're not personal attacks. I think personal attacks do have a place in philosophy, um, but uh, I've dealt with that in other areas. You can find logical contradictions in the argument. So even if you accept the basic building blocks, the axioms, uh, the uh, sort of irreducible facts uh, at the base of a philosophy, you can find logical contradictions in the arguments. You can find counterexamples that deny universalization. So if I say truth is subjective, I'm making a universal statement. Uh, and the counterexample in this case is the actual statement, truth is uh, subjective. So you can find counter examples that deny uh, universalization. You can find trends that potentially counter generalized predictions. And this is, this is tricky, but it's still important. So uh, uh, Rand would argue capitalist economies do better than communist economies. So if you can find a significant number of communist economies that defy Ludwig von Mises' uh, price calculation problem, which is that without a free market, you can't determine prices. Without prices, you can't efficiently allocate uh, goods and services because, of course, it's the pull of prices uh, and demand that determine how resources should be allocated. So if you can find a number of communist economies that do better than capitalist economies, in other words, where uh, coercive intrusions into voluntary trade results in a healthier, better, more vibrant, more growing, more productive, more innovative, more creative economy, then you are going to be able to begin to chip away at someone's argument. So this is very, very basic, and there's lots more to talk about. But this is a civilized way of how to criticize 
arguments. The barbaric way is the bonobo monkey poo projectile uh, technique, where basically you load a, um, a giant catapult full of shit and you continue to hurl insults and slurs, slurs at an individual until people shy away from their arguments. You know, racist, sexist, misogynistic, uh, uh, elitist, uh, poor, hating, uh, wants people to die. You, know, you just keep hurling uh, invective and it kind of sticks. People tend to shy away from someone who has a lot of sniper lasers on their forehead because, of course, in a tribe, which is where our social sensibilities evolved, in a small tribe, if you were hated by a number of people, your days were probably not long in this world. We don't fundamentally recognize in our bones that the internet is not composed of, or, or literature or reviews, or not composed of people within jawbone striking distance of our craniums. So you just keep hurling uh, slurs and insults an individual until it becomes disrespectful to even examine that individual's arguments. And this is straight out of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Um, he's uh, number five, uh, ridic uh, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. It is almost impossible to counteract ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition, which then reacts to your advantage. So you just, you keep hurling something like racism or, or, or racist or sexist or whatever. Uh, and you just keep hurling that at the person until the person spends his or her energy trying to splutteringly defend against these terms and it consumes their energies and it gives life to the attack. Number 13, uh, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. In conflict tactics, there are certain rules that should be regarded as universalities. One is that opposition must be singled out as the target and frozen. Uh, and frozen basically means uh, just continue to hurl invective until the person can't get any kind of single argument across. Uh, any target, he, uh, Saul writes, can, can always say, well, why do you center on me when there are others to blame as well? But when you freeze the target, you disregard these rational but distracting arguments. This is basic leftism. Uh, he was uh, somewhat on the left. He was a mixed bag, but um, somewhat on the left. And you can just see this. I mean, if you don't like Obama, you're a racist. If you have problems with feminism, you hate women. Like, this is just, they're not arguments. It's just barbaric, idiot, but challengingly effective, right? Because a lot of people aren't taught how to think critically. And this is basic uh, on the left, right? The Tea Party is composed of racists and reactionaries and angry white people who are upset that their uh, seat of power is being overthrown by a more diverse culture. I mean, there's no actual argument there. Uh, you're just continuing to portray the person in a negative light so that you portray them as so deranged and so irrational that nobody even bothers to examine their arguments. This is a very effective technique in an undereducated world. So... A little bit of background as to why uh, Ayn Rand uh, has so much invective thro thrown at her. Uh, Ayn Rand is, is a, a virulent, powerful anti-communist. And um, she can't really be convicted of uh, anti-Semitism and so on because she was a Jew. And so um, Marxists, of course, uh, expected capitalism to implode and lead to communism, right? So they say feudalism leads to capitalism, capitalism inevitably leads to communism because the capitalists start taking so many profits and the workers are starving and there's this revolution which leads to communism. They felt it was an inevitable scientific progression of uh, human society. So, yeah, wages go down, workers starve, there's a revolution, but this didn't really happen at all uh, in the 19th century 
um, uh, calories per worker massively increased, wages massively increased, and so uh, capitalism was defying the supposedly scientific predictions of Marxism, and uh, therefore they were not happy, and therefore they decided to rig the game, to to cheat, right? If this is supposed to be some inevitability, uh, then uh, this in the scientific field would be called like leaning on the scale or, or just basically fudging uh, the results or introducing some other element that further confirmed your theory, even though it didn't happen in reality. So they couldn't find the victims that they wanted. And so they had to, to some degree, uh, invent them. And so uh, Ayn Rand's novels are not full of victims, right? Uh, they, uh, and the victims are victims of state power, which is, of course, what Marxists really wanted. They wanted totalitarian dictatorship with themselves at the top. Because the alternative of actually working for a living and providing value in the free market is kind of anathema to these uh, nasty sophists. So they want an extension and expansion of uh, government power. This uh, is not what happens in Ayn Rand's uh, novels and in her fiction. She definitely relies upon, as we talked about in the last show, the efficacy and competence of human thinking. And she has women who are heroes, women who run railroads, uh, women who are incredibly powerful and authoritative and clear thinking and brave and so on. So this goes against the women as victim standard of the left. And of course, most early feminists were explicit Marxists uh, and so on. So, during the uh, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, really up until Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, uh, blacks and women were all doing better. The massive infusion of labor-saving devices for women, um, uh, black families were doing better, black per capita income was increasing, and so Marxists were kind of freaking out because capitalism was doing the opposite of what they predicted and was eclipsing their grab for power. And uh, they didn't like that. And then, of course, the horrors. Uh, Khrushchev did a speech where he revealed some of the horrors of Stalinism. And Stalin was a real hero to most of the Marxists. They wrote lovely books and made movies praising him as a far-seeing visionary who could walk on the blood of capitalists, carrying the proletariat to a brave new world of peace and abundance. And this all turned out to be false. So Marxism was doing uh, really, really badly. Uh, it was an explicit uh, 1921, I think, was the year, and the, the truth about immigration has more about this. But uh, the Marxist goal was to uh, mobilize blacks in particular and uh, mobilize them against the free market by saying that the free market was inherently unjust to women, blacks, other minorities, and so on. But this was being counteracted by um, the free market uh, generally rising, t rising tide, lifting all boats, and so on. Because um, Marxists say that uh, capitalists are all about profit. Uh, yeah, like workers don't want more wages. Somehow, the desire for profit is only part of the capitalist class. And of course, if workers are generally underpaid, then a capitalist can make a fortune by offering them 10 cents more an hour. Because they'll all start swarming over to him. Then the other cap so bidding up wages is part of the greed of capitalism. So Marxists had to say that people were bigoted against blacks, people were bigoted against women, and that bigotry eclipsed their natural capitalistic greed. In other words, there were personal or tribal or social considerations that vastly eclipsed a profit. And then they'd have to say, well, it's not profits that drive capitalism, uh, but rather bigotry. And uh, that goes against the Marxist theory that profits drive capitalism and profits are the source of injustice. Because if there's bigotry, in capitalism, then there's no way to eliminate that by becoming communist, right? Because if they can eliminate the profit motive, 
but they can't eliminate bigotry. At least there was no clear plan to do so, because then that would be, I don't know, part of human nature or whatever, right? They also couldn't claim that the bigotry came from the capitalist system because uh, just about everybody in the United States at the time was raised in government-run schools, right? Which is a foundational backbone of communism and Marxism, which is why we continue to drift further and further to the left, because people are indoctrinated for 12 years in a leftist institution by leftist teachers in leftist principles. Kind of inevitable, right? As the Jesuits say, give me a child until he is seven and he is mine for life. So so this is sort of the context. Uh, and Ayn Rand comes along and says free market is good. Uh, free market is not bigoted. And the free market punishes bigotry, right? So uh, if uh, Hispanics are as able as whites and I'm prejudiced against Hispanics, then I can only hire from a significantly and shrinking pool of white applicants. And therefore, my competitors who are not bigoted uh, will end up hiring from a wider talent pool. They'll do better. So you can be bigoted in the free market, but your bigotry will be punished where that bigotry is irrational. So uh, this was a big problem uh, for the Marxists. And uh, then along comes Ayn Rand, uh, a Jewish free market advocate uh, uh, like uh, um, Murray Rothbard and so on. It was a big problem for them. So they have to convince significant portions of society that freedom is injustice. Right, Because the blacks who suffered for over 300 years of uh, government bigotry, as slavery was enforced by the government, the Jim Crow laws were enforced by the government uh, uh, and so on. Naturally, a free market advocate would go to the blacks and say, government's kind of your enemy, my friends, uh, so let's reduce government power and you will naturally become freer. That wasn't the Marxist's goal. So the Marxists had to point uh, blacks and, and women at the free market and endlessly say, uh, freedom is injustice. If you have equal property rights, if you have equality under the law, you will suffer because of the sexism, bigotry, and racism of the capitalists, which mysteriously goes against the profit motive that is supposed to be the driving force of the free market and blah 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 So they had to say, uh, freedom is a horrible injustice. And the only way to save yourself from the horrible injustice of freedom is to run into the arms of the nanny state and get pay equity laws and get affirmative action laws and get you you name it right all of the hundreds and hundreds of laws that are supposed to benefit minorities uh, and women and uh, so on so this is sort of the basic context of uh, why there was so much invective from the left towards rand so let's start digging into some of them ayn rand is an elitist dun, dun, well what does this mean <laughs> we all love elitism i mean let's be honest come on who should be the singer in the band? What's the best singer and the best frontman? That's why they didn't have John Deacon up front during Live Aid. Who should be the lead actor? Well, the person who has the most appeal, uh, the person who has the, the best acting ability or has the most charisma or is the best looking or whatever combination gets the asses into the seats. Who should be the dancer? Do you want Kevin Federline when he was doing a backup dancing for Britney Spears? Or do you want Kevin Federline when he basically is a... <laughs> backup dancer for his couch surfing these days. Who should be the gold medalist? Well, the person who wins. Uh, who should be the quarterback? The person with the best throw and the best knowledge. Who should be the model? It's the prettiest person, blah, 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 right? So we all love elitism and we reward elitism with huge amounts of money and endorsements and so on. So the idea that being an elitist is some sort of terrible thing uh, flies in the face of uh, what all of our preferences are. So some uh, critic wrote, Rand espouses an elitist oligarchic philosophy that is both fundamentally anti-American and deeply at odds with the Tea Party's own We the People course. 
Rand and her heroes hold ordinary people in great contempt. You see, this is not an argument. Uh, there's no evidence provided. You know, the moment people just fire the cannon full of negative adjectives at someone without any supporting arguments, or the, mo the moment they give you like quotes without context, without an examination of the syllogisms of the argument, you just know they're reaching for your pocket through their words and uh, are definitely people to keep uh, at taser length or further. Because Rand and her heroes hold ordinary people in great contempt. So what they're saying, what this person is trying to manipulate you into feeling is that, well, you're an ordinary person. I mean, you're not a Randian hero, so you're held in great contempt. And that evokes dislike on the part of people. So this is just aimed to make you dislike Rand and her heroes and so on. Another critic wrote, Rand viewed the capitalists, not the workers, as the producers of all wealth, and the workers, not the capitalists, as use useless parasites. First of all, parasites aren't useless. Uh, parasites are negative. If they're mutually beneficial, it's symbiotic. So not even a good <laughs> biological metaphor. As the producers of all wealth. See, this is, again, just mad. Uh, I mean, e even within the, the confines of... Uh, Rand's novels, Howard Rourke, the architect, didn't build all of the houses himself, right? You just have to read I pencil to realize how much coordination has to go into the production of a simple pencil, right? The, the lead has to be mined, uh, the paint has to be made, the eraser, the metal for the tip around the eraser, the ring around the eraser, uh, the, the wood for the pencil, huge amounts of coordination. There's no one person in the world who knows how to make a pencil, uh, and that's something as simple as a pencil. Uh, Howard Rourke, of course, employed people to create his buildings. He was the designer. He certainly was on hand. He knew how to do a lot of the work. Uh, but um, there was cooperation. Different levels of ability, but cooperation. And uh, Dagny Taggart in Atlas Shrugged did not run the entire intercontinental railroad by herself. Right? She didn't go up and dig up the coal and then carry the coal and put it in the locomotives, go get the oil and dig, right? I could go on and on, but of course it's a cooperative venture. The capitalists, not the workers, as the producers of all wealth. Well, that's nonsense. The other thing, too, as a, a former capitalist, I guess I was a, I founded a company and grew it. The idea that the capitalists or the entrepreneurs are not the workers, but the people they hire are the workers, is fundamentally insulting. Dividing people into capitalists and workers uh, is insulting. Uh, I worked uh, more hours than they were in the day sometimes, literally, uh, when I was uh, uh, bringing, growing the company that I co-founded. Uh, I worked uh, two nights straight uh, one time. I traveled all the time. Uh, I put in 80 hours a week, much more than the average employee. So the idea that they're the workers and I'm just the lazy capitalist, well, it's just silly and it just shows you that uh, people are talking about the economy who've never actually really participated in it. It all struck me. I had this Marxist professor the rise of socialism, no, the rise of capitalism, the socialist response was the this course at uh, Glendon College of York University that I took. And uh, basically this barrel-shaped Ewok Marxist professor had never actually worked in, in the market at all. I mean, he'd gone from government schools to uh, largely government-run and subsidized uh, higher education, and then he had got tenure through his government-protected and sponsored union, and he'd actually never spent a day in the free market, uh, to my knowledge, and yet he was talking all about capitalists and entrepreneurs, which is like me uh, explaining the black experience to a classroom of blacks, having never actually <laughs> had a black friend or talked to a black person. Um, when you get all your knowledge from books, all you learn is prejudice, not empiricism. So, 
Economic influence versus political power is a very big distinction uh, in objectivism. And it's not just in objectivism. So economic influence is, yeah, I got a lot of money. So I can spend it and that, right? But that all requires voluntary participation, right? If I'm staggeringly good looking, then I guess I can go to bed with a lot of shallow women. But that's not the same as rape, right? That just supply and demand. Political power is very different from economic influence. And the co-joining of the two uh, is uh, wretched and completely wrong and so ignorant that it can only be motivated by malevolence. Uh, Political power is, I can go and bribe a congressman through campaign contributions and sending out fundraising dinners. I can go bribe a congressman to give me preferential legislation, which means that anybody who acts against my economic interest goes to jail, right? So if I'm a sweater manufacturer, I can lobby my congressman to put a $5 a sweater import tax on sweaters from China. That is the use of violence. That's completely different. And economic influence, yeah, we vote with our dollars. Every time you buy a copy of Windows, you're voting for Microsoft. Every time you buy uh, an Apple product, you're voting for Apple. And it's true some people have more votes than others, but that's just the result of previous votes. Whether even, even if it's inherited, it's the vote of the parents in terms of giving people money. So economic influence uh, is not the same as political power, any more than being good-looking is the same as rape. So as we mentioned, the creation of victims who need political protection is constantly, right, so it's constantly used in criticisms of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is an elitist. She wants uh, to, to control you. She has nothing but contempt for you. She wants people to rule over you. She wants the capitalists to have all the power. This is the creation of victims. And the moment you create victims, you create a hunger for a protector, which is the white knight of the state who comes in to, quote, save everyone and ends up pretty much enslaving them. So from capitalism, the unknown ideal, um, she wrote, wealth in a free market is achieved by a free general democratic vote by the sales and purchases of every individual who takes part in the economic life of the country. No one has the power to decide for others or to substitute his judgment for others. Economic power is exercised by means of a positive, by offering men a reward, an incentive, a payment of value. Political power is exercised by means of a negation. A negative, sorry. By the threat of punishment, injury, imprisonment, destruction. So if I run a pizza place and I give you a coupon for a free slice of pizza, I get you to come in and try my pizza. It's an incentive. It's an offer. It's a reward. If I'm a politician and I pass a law, then um, you go to jail if you disobey it. The only thing I can reward you with is not throwing you in jail, which is not much of a reward when you think about it. So this idea that she's elitist is not even really an argument uh, and um, there's really no evidence for it. She recognized different levels of ability. Don't we all, right? I mean, American Idol uh, doesn't vote some random guy in the audience who squalls like a cat being fed ass backward through a Cuisinart as the best singer. It's a competition and the best win. Ability equals virtue. So in uh, a lot of criticisms of Rand's universe is that, well, if you're really competent, you must be really virtuous. And those who are incompetent must be evil. So did she make the argument that the most talented and productive are morally superior? Well, there's plenty of brilliant evil characters. Uh, Tui in The Fountainhead, uh, Robert Stadler, the evil scientist uh, who just needs basically a bald head and a bald cat in his lap to complete the Bond villain picture. Lots of brilliant evil characters. And... Um, that's not really the case. There's pl- plenty of very smart, evil businessmen. So James Taggart and Aaron Boyle in Atlas Shrugged, spoiler, uh, set up a uh, cartel through the power of the state to undermine competition and uh, fight against uh, uh, Reardon Metal, I think it was. 
The novels uh, of Ayn Rand are full of worthy people of lesser abilities, and ability and morality are clearly differentiated in her work. So in The Objectivist Ethics, she writes, Productive work means the consciously chosen pursuit of a productive career in any line of rational endeavor, great or modest, on any level of ability. It is not the degree of a man's ability nor the scale of his work that is ethically relevant here, but the fullest and most purposeful use of his mind. Again, straight out of Compton. No, straight out of Aristotle. That's probably a little bit more appropriate. Uh, so she's saying, look, you, you, the degree to which you pursue excellence is fantastic. That's a mark of your productivity and so on. It's not moral. It's not evil to not pursue excellence because you're not initiating the use of force against anyone else. I guess with the exception that if you're a parent and you don't pursue excellence in parenting, your children suffer because they can't leave. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. So the idea that ability equaled virtue, she explicitly denied it. The novels are full of counter uh, characters for that. Um, in The Fountainhead, uh, Howard Rourke has a friend, Mike I think his name is, an electrician of very modest uh, abil abilities, but a, a, very, a person of great integrity who he has a, has a great friend and so on. Ah, wealth equals virtue. So in Rand's universe, apparently, according to our critics, uh, if you are rich, you are a virtuous person. That is not true. There are plenty of evil rich characters in uh, her novels. Plenty of noble poor characters. Uh, Rourke, his friend, the electrician I mentioned. There's a homeless man who tells the story of the 20th century motor company to Dagny on the train. He's dirt poor, but has learned a huge amount about virtue. Uh, wealth was not the central issue or any issue at all. Force was. Right? The accumulation of wealth through trade in the free market is the degree to which you have been of service to the needs and preferences of other people. Let me say that again because it's really unclear to a lot of people. The degree of wealth that you attain in the free market is the degree to which you have served the needs and preferences successfully of other people. Right? If, if people want an Italian restaurant... You open an Italian restaurant, lots of people come. It's because lots of people want the Italian restaurant. They're voting for it. You're serving their needs. You're making them happy. That's why they come back. So in a free market, the degree of wealth is the degree of service, of successfully serving and meeting the needs of other people. Can be in the porn industry. It doesn't necessarily have to be the most noble of pursuits, but you are successfully meeting the needs uh, of people. If you use force to transfer wealth as a mugger, uh, as a counterfeiter, uh, Federal Reserve, or as a um, uh, somebody who uses political power to transfer wealth, well, that's immoral. But the connection between wealth and virtue uh, is not at all made in her novels. Is she right-wing? She's a hero to a lot of the right-wing people. Um, uh, Paul Ryan, uh, of course, uh, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, and so on. Was she right-wing? Objectivism. Reason individualism, personal happiness, right? Again, sort of boiled down a little, but that's the way it rolls. Conservatism tends to be about faith, tradition, duty, and sacrifice. So Ayn Rand loathed the draft as uh, violence, um, uh, servitude to uh, mostly evil ends. Um, she was, of course, an out-and-out -out explicit Strong as strong can be atheist. Not, well, I don't know, or it could be, but there is no God, don't be ridiculous. So faith, tradition, she was explicitly anti-traditional. Um, as you can see from her writings, she's put forward a number of startling new ideas. Duty and sacrifice. Um, it, it's impossible to imagine uh, Ayn Rand saluting, uh, except perhaps in, you know, sympathy for his victimhood, a Vietnam veteran. Uh, but of course, conservatives do this sort of stuff all the time.
So uh, she was um, believed in the right of a woman to um, kill a fetus uh, in her belly, abortion. Uh, she, of course, opposed uh, religion of, of any kind and so on. So is she family values? Uh, family values? Well, Reardon, uh, Hank, uh, Hank Reardon, um, was a man who ended up, once he realized that his family was committed to his spiritual, emotional, and financial, and legal destruction, left his family. Once he realized that his family was committed to exploiting him through the power of the state and desperately needed him but kept insulting him, he left them. In other words, as Aristotle said, we love our friends, we must love the truth even more. And when the two contradict, it is our friends who must lose and the truth who must win. This is a standard philosophical argument that has been made throughout the ages because if if uh, blood ties, DNA sharing, and kinship is the highest value, why bother studying any kind of philosophy or morality or truth at all? You just say, I don't know, what do the elders think? What does the family think? Well, that's what I pretend to think as well. She herself had no kids. Uh, her husband, Frank O'Connor, was uh, a very good-looking guy uh, and uh, a very sweet and gentle guy, and he basically was a house husband. And he cooked, he cleaned, and so on. He had a couple of jobs, I think, as a shoe salesman and stuff like that. So how could this be considered traditional right-wing family values? Ah, yes, Ayn Rand is not a serious philosopher. What does that, what does serious philosopher mean? She was not an academic because she was doing philosophy. She was bringing philosophy to the masses. She was engaging the public in philosophical discourse, not just sitting in the library, chewing the end of her book and footnoting. Most major philosophers present their own thoughts and arguments. They don't reference others except in passing. You'll hear a little bit uh, from Plato's rendition of Socrates about pre-Socratic philosophers, um, Spinoza, uh, Hume, and so on. They will reference other people, but they're basically concerned with presenting their own thoughts and arguments. Uh, This is fundamental. So just off the top of my head, the people that I've read and studied, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Nietzsche, Hegel, Marx, Schopenhauer, Spinoza, Kant, and so on. They weren't academics. They're not influential because they analyzed other philosophers. They weren't cover bands. They created their own arguments, their own ideas, their own perspectives, and forcefully persuaded other people of their viewpoints. This is kind of the irony. And I remember... When I was studying philosophy, uh, both in undergraduate and graduate school, uh, I remember this being enormously ironic, that we were simply supposed to study other philosophers. And I remember bringing this argument up with my prof and saying, well, but we're studying these philosophers because they thought for themselves, not because they studied other philosophers. Right? So if a philosopher, in other words, people whose thoughts you examine when studying philosophy, if a philosopher is someone who comes up with original arguments and doesn't particularly study other philosophers then philosophy professors are by definition not philosophers because they mostly study other people's arguments. Ayn Rand had an enormous amount of influence because she was in the free market. She respected the free market. So she's not going to go into academia. What do academics have to offer their students? Well, the Willy Wonka golden ticket to academia. If you please me, then I will give you the PhD. I will write you letters of recommendation and I will help you get a job where you teach a couple of hours a week, uh, get sabbaticals, get summers off, and get paid uh, six figures plus and have tenure, job security, and so on, right? So I'll get you into the Elysium fields of state-sponsored 
the state-sponsored biosphere of exaggerated income and prestige, I will get you into this ticket if you do what I say and do what I like. That's political. That's gross. That is so anti-philosophical that you could not imagine an environment that would most seriously compromise any human being's integrity. Now, if you are a true philosopher, you go to the market, you go to the people, like Socrates did. You go to the marketplace and talk with people about truth and reason and evidence. You listen to people's concerns and you address as best you can with philosophical principles the challenges that people are facing in their lives. That's what Socrates did. It's what a number of other philosophers did. It's what I happen to do. I do six plus hours of call-in shows a week. Uh, I do listener responses to questions. I want to know what people are having challenges with and I attempt as best I can to apply philosophical principles to the issues that people have. That's called being in the market. That's called having an effect and having an influence, which is why, you know, we have 75, 80 million downloads of the show. So what is the influence? Serious philosophers generally refer to those who sit in their ivory tower and do sweet F.A. to help society as a whole. So when society has a big moral challenge, a big moral problem, how many times do they say, get a philosopher on the line. We need a philosopher in the studio. Mic him up. Use the red phone to direct reason. This doesn't happen. Philosophers are completely ignored. And who takes their place? Pundits. Ideologues, demagogues, sophists. People with sound bites, not philosophers. So Ayn Rand was in the market. She talked to the people. She listened to the people. She influenced the people. Come on, some guy sitting there writing his... Uh, Thesis deconstructing the deconstruction of Wittgenstein. Oh, she's not a serious philosopher. I am. Because the government gives me tenure and I bought my PhD through subservience to the whims and wishes of propagandized others in authority. What more anti-philosophical position or result could you achieve? Oh, she took social security. Dun, dun, dun. You see this all the time. She took Social Security. She took health care from the government when she was sick. This lifelong advocate of the free market, she took the government. Blah, 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 right? Okay, there's some evidence that she did. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's complicated. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but um, she signed over power of attorney. Her attorneys wanted her to get this stuff because it was resources, it was money, and they weren't objectivists and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, but let's just say she did. Fine, fine, fine. The question is not, did she take social security or government assistance, the question is, what was that action, how was that action related to her philosophy? So Rand, of course, viewed welfare programs like social security as legalized plunder. She argued that the only condition under which it is moral to collect social security is if one regards it as restitution and opposes all forms of welfare statism. Social security, of course, is involuntary. Participation is forced through payroll taxes. If you consider such forced, quote, participation as unjust, as Rand did, the harm inflicted on you would only be compounded if your announcement of the program's injustice precluded you from collecting social security. Can you steal back a bike that was stolen from you? Of course you can. Of course you can. If somebody steals my bike and I see it lying on their lawn and I take it back, oh! <gasps> Oh, the supposed protector of property rights. Bloody, bloody. He stole. I mean, this is just nonsense. And again, this is people who have no thought as to an examination of the action of taking Social Security 
vis-a-vis her philosophy as a whole. She said, absolutely, take money back. Steal back from the people who stole from you, particularly if they're giving it to you voluntarily and willingly. Taking your money back, and it was a small proportion, she paid way more in taxes than whatever she collected through, it was a couple of thousand dollars she collected in this other stuff. She paid way more in taxes than she ever made back in Social Security. So if the mafia shakes me down for $1,000 a month and then they have a free barbecue and I go and have a hot dog, this does not mean that I'm now fully in approval of the mafia. It just means, well, at least I can get a buck back from the amount of money that they've taken. The extreme example is, can you steal food in a concentration camp? Of course you can. You're in a situation of coercion and therefore um, to, to be more moral than those you're surrounded by is not particularly rational. So from the question of scholarships, 1966, ah, Another interesting year for philosophy. (laughs) She wrote, The same moral principles and considerations apply to the issue of accepting Social Security, unemployment insurance, or other payments of that kind. It is obvious in such cases that a man receives his own money, which was taken from him by force directly and specifically without his consent against his own choice. Those who advocated such laws are morally guilty, since they assumed the right to force employers and unwilling co-workers. But the victims who oppose such laws have a clear right to any refund of their own money, and they would not advance the cause of freedom if they left their money unclaimed for the benefit of the Welfare State Administration. Now, whether you agree or disagree with this argument is not particularly relevant because most people say that Ayn Rand took Social Security and therefore she was a hypocrite. No. She was not at all a hypocrite by her philosophical argument. She was acting perfectly in accord with her own philosophical argument, with her own uh, philosophical position. Not hypocritical. Now, if you can find a way to make this argument, to falsify this argument, you can say that she was incorrect to take it, but you cannot call her a hypocrite. A hypocrite is when you act against your own stated values. She acted perfectly in accordance with her own stated values. So please, if you're tempted to post this, shut the hell up and do some goddamn reading and stop being an idiot. Oh, right. Rough sex! She wrote about rough sex! Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, you may have heard a little book. I'm grinding my way through it. Um... Certainly not fabbing my way through it. Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, one of the most popular um, erotic novels, I guess you could say, uh, consumed largely by women. Uh, so, uh, and and it's about um, an S and M relationship. So it is a masochistic torture, clamps, hot wax on the you know what. I mean, oh, so the idea that a woman who writes about rough sex is just a complete unholy mess and monster. Well. You then got to go and talk to all, to all the women who are buying Fifty Shades of Grey and say, Aha! <laughs> you nasty hypocrites. She was not a Christian. I mean, this is, I mean, something to be reminded of. We'll talk about this with the affairs and all that, but she's not a Christian. So she found it, I assume, since she wrote about her heroines, and she said that Dominique was herself on a bad day, in a bad mood. So she liked the idea of being dominated by, uh, by a man, sexually. Okay, I'm not sure that that was really Frank O'Connor's strong suit, but nonetheless. So yeah, the fact that women sometimes uh, have fantasies about being dominated by a man sexually, uh, duh. well, this happens, and there's lots of biological reasons as to why this happens. 
bonobo monkeys, other forms of monkeys, um, the uh, uh, aggression is a pretty strong trait for biological selection, right? And so what happens is the women provoke, uh, the, the female uh, uh, apes or, or monkeys, they provoke the men into almost attacking them. And then when they're just about to attack and kill them, they offer up their vaginas. So this has a long and illustrious history uh, among all the apes and ape cousins uh, such as ourselves. So, yeah, she wrote about rough sex. Clearly it wasn't um, rape. So she's a dramatist. Uh, and so she wants dramatic uh, sex. Uh, conflict is the essence of drama and so on. And um, if you've ever seen women talk about Vladimir Putin and his topless horseback riding... The fact that she's a Russian and kind of into dominant guys, yeah, may not want to blame Rand herself particularly, but to some degree the culture of Russia. She's not depicting rape at all. I mean, the rape victims don't generally pursue and blissfully marry their, quote, rapists. So it was not uh, rape at all. So, I don't know, that's just, it's just, it's just a funny kind of prudery. Ooh, she wrote about rough sex. Lord B, I'm a Victorian, I must go faint on the couch. <laughs> what are you, <laughs> be Blanche Dubois, shocked and appalled. Get me my vapors. Anyway, so yes, she wrote about rough sex. Deal. Was she Darwinian? Oh, selfish dog-eat-dog. Me, me, me. Win, win, lose. Win, win. Nah. Well, you know, this dog-eat-dog stuff. I mean, dogs don't even eat dogs in nature, let alone in... <laughs> so Chicago Tribune movie cricket, uh, critic Michael Phillips. Rand's pet theory. Ooh, don't you love it when someone says pet theory? Uh, that is, again, a way of programming you. Uh, to not give the person's uh, viewpoint any respect. Rand's pet theory is known as objectivism, which can be described as us. There is no us. In Rand's worldview, it's me time all the time. There's nothing to do but start anew in a civilization run by the mysterious John Galt, who respects the rapacious dog-eat-dog nature of humankind. Now, even if we accept the dog-eat-dog nonsense, um, that's win-lose, right? Win-lose. Now, win-lose is political power. Right. I mean, outside of bare self-defense um, and the right of the state to help you protect you, so your person and your property. So when somebody passes the aforementioned sweater tariff, that's win-lose. That person wins who runs a sweater company domestically, and the consumers lose, and the Chinese exporters lose. So it's that's win-lose. But uh, as we talked about in the last presentation, a free market interaction is win-win by definition. doesn't mean there's never such thing as buyer's remorse. You can always change your mind. But... When you voluntarily trade with someone, you expect to benefit more than you lose, as does the other person. So dog-eat-dog dog is one dog eating another, it's win-lose. The free market is win-win. By, by, there's no, I mean, this is praxeological, there's no way to get around it. Whatever you choose to do voluntarily must have a sense of benefit for you, otherwise you simply wouldn't do it. Doesn't mean it's going to be, and some people choose to smoke, right? It means that they're choosing short-term benefits over longer-term benefits, the same thing with apple pie uh, all day and so on. But uh, you can't get around that a voluntary transaction must be considered beneficial to both parties, right? I'm spending time creating this presentation. You're spending time watching and consuming it. You expect to benefit from the presentation. I expect to benefit from the presentation, both in terms of getting philosophy out there, uh, hoping to get people interested in an often mal um, unjustly maligned thinker. And I, of course, survive on donations. So, of course, I'm trying to provide as much value as I can, fdrurl.com slash donate if you'd like to help out. So what did uh, she actually say? Is she Darwinian? She wrote, the, the objectivist ethics holds that human good does not require human sacrifices and cannot be achieved by the sacrifice of anyone to anyone. 
It holds that the rational interests of men do not clash, that there is no conflict of interests among men who do not desire the unearned, who do not make sacrifices nor accept them, who deal with one another as traitors, giving value for value. So the idea that it's win-lose, dog-eat-dog, Darwinian, I win, you lose, I, I, I exploit you to my advantage, and, and I mean, it's all specifically and explicitly rejected, repeatedly. And this is what's so goddamn lazy about people, you know? Lots of people, Ayn Rand Institute, uh, lots of places where you can go and uh, uh, get, you know, call them up, you're a journalist, you call them up, hey man, I'm about to write about Ayn Rand. I'm not an expert. That's a lot of paperweight. That's a lot of dead trees in the service of philosophy. So could you help a brother out or a sister out? You know, give me some facts. You know, my impression is it's doggy dog. Can you give me a quote? Just some basic, basic journalistic integrity and research is necessary. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything Ayn Rand says or wrote. Of course not. It's not the point of philosophy. It's not paint by numbers, right? The purpose of uh, teaching you to compose music is not to have you turn into uh, a cover man. But at least get accurate that which you're criticizing. And I tell you this, I mean, this is just sort of by the by. When you know anything about anything and you see the mainstream media talk about it or write about it, it is chilling as hell. It's like Stephen King's index finger frozen into a cadaverous worm crawling up your spine. That is what happens when you know anything. It's like it's like knowing technology and watching Hollywood movies. It's like, I don't think a USB drive can destroy an alien spaceship. So, um, when you know something about something, and if you know something about random objectivism, every time you see the mainstream media talk about it, uh, talk about her, they're so completely wrong that it should give you great pause and a great amount of skepticism as to anything else that they happen to write or talk about. So, again, we talked about this before. Should one stay in a miserable marriage? Well, the general argument is no. Well, yeah, work at it, go to therapy, couples counseling or whatever. But no, if you're genuinely miserable, if the other person is a mean monster and so on, you don't stay. So, if you stay, then you're sacrificing your happiness for the irrational prejudices of another person. That's a sacrifice. That's a huge loss. And uh, so, no, that's not Darwinian at all. She wrote about the Palestinians. Now, she actually only mentioned Israel once in her writings. She had some misconceptions about the Palestinians. She believed that without U.S. support, Russia, which was supporting the Arabs at the time, would control the Mediterranean and its oil. And she saw the fight between Israel and the Arabs as a fight between civilized men and uh, savages. Generally, she said, in, in, in Q&A, she was asked about this a lot. She said, look, I support Israel, although Israel is a socialist country. In that region of the world, Israel is the vanguard of civilization. Now, according to objectivism, it is absolutely unjust and wrong to be forced to pay for Israel, right? To, to send over the hundreds of billions of dollars that is being poured over into Israel by the United States government. Uh, that is absolutely, completely, and totally wrong. So she would not, if she were consistent, be in support of any of that. But, um, uh, so she viewed, of, now, there's some tribalism involved here. She did grow up Jewish. Uh, this doesn't make it right, but I just talked about this with Noam Chomsky the other day. There are lots of Jews who are anti-state, and then when it comes to Israel, there's tribalism. Absolutely. So, um, uh, I don't agree with what she said about the Palestinians. Uh, I think it was brutal. I think it was negative. 
Uh, and I think it was wrong because um, uh, on the other hand, that having been said, I would rather live in Israel than I would under Sharia law. And I'm not saying all the Palestinians are in support of that or whatever, but um, uh, Israel has more tolerance uh, and, and uh, of course, a vastly better record uh, in human rights overall, with massive, of course, exceptions, than uh, the the Arab world, right, the Muslim world as a whole. So, again, that's a very, very big topic, but uh, she viewed it that uh, Israel was a more civilized country than the uh, Arab countries that uh, surrounded it. You can certainly make that case. Uh, Sam Harris just made that case recently. Again, it doesn't mean that he's right, but you can certainly make that case with some very good support. Native Americans. This is what she wrote. The Native Americans didn't have any rights to the land, and there was no reason for anyone to grant them rights which they had not conceived and were not using. What was it they were fighting for if they opposed white men on this continent, for their wish to continue a primitive existence, their right to keep part of the earth untouched, unused, and not even as property? Just keep everybody out so that you will live practically like an animal or maybe a few caves above it? Any white person who brought the element of civilization had the right to take over this continent. Again, this is put forward uh, as the most heinous possible uh, situation that could possibly happen, uh, and as complete wrong. There's context. Again, the argument is startling, but there's context. So the Native Americans um, had very little sense of property. I mean, the gen- again, this is generalizations and so on. Generally, a hunter-gatherer civilization. A hunter-gatherer civilization doesn't square off plots of land and plant, cr- plant crops. Right, they're generally following the bison, they're following the buffalo, they're doing whatever. Right, they're just roaming around. Now, generally in history, when agricultural societies come in contact with hunter-gatherer societies, there's a fundamental incompatibility because the agricultural societies they want to plant crops, they want to raise livestock, and so on. So they plant themselves down, they put fences around their property, and property is very important. Property is not a concept that hunter-gatherer societies, other than sort of you know my teepee kind of personal property stuff. But they don't have any particular sense or need of personal property. Now, in general, the societies that have pursued uh, agriculture, particularly in colder climates, have developed particular uh, skills, uh, both uh, intellectual and affirmative gratification and so on. Whereas the hunter-gatherer societies tend to live in a more primitive and perpetually primitive kind of state. There's a, um, a crippling amount of tradition, there's a crippling amount of violence, there's a crippling amount of child abuse, which is one of the main reasons why these societies tend to stay so uh, stagnant. So Ayn Rand views a property-based society as vastly superior to a hunter-gatherer society. I mean, she's an intellectual, she is a writer, she is a thinker, she is a moralist. And she vastly loved the free market. And it's almost impossible for a free market to develop in a hunter-gatherer society, which is why they tend to remain at such a primitive uh, and, and incredibly low rent and incredibly, like, every day is like the last for thousands and thousands of years. They tend to remain in a very primitive uh, state. And um, so from her perspective, civilization was based on property, trade, and the free market all of which are fundamentally incompatible and impossible. Incompatible with and impossible to a hunter-gatherer society. So she viewed the conquest of the new world as the spread of civilization. Now, I've spent time on northern reserves. I uh, have been around that milieu considerably. And uh, the reality is that a significant portion of Native Americans and Native Canadians uh, actually agree with her in that they generally prefer 
uh, a property-based society to a hunter-gatherer society. In that very few of them uh, live out in the woods in teepees uh, and have no access to modern conveniences, uh, modern medicine, modern technology, uh, and so on. And, um, I mean, I've hired them, I've worked alongside them, and uh, they generally really like uh, all of the stuff that the West has brought. Because, of course, like 98% of Canada is completely uninhabited, and uh, natives have vast tracts of land that they could easily revert to their earlier ways if they wanted. But generally, they tend to build casinos, they tend to enjoy free education, a lot of them integrate and so on, and they like the money uh, and goods provided by largely guilt-ridden and destructive Western government policies. So... Right. Uh, I generally work empirically uh, with with groups and uh, I look at the choices that they make. And the majority of Native Americans um, would not return to their former lives if they could. And they enjoy the majority of the fruits of the labor of uh, the progress that has been brought by Western societies and so on. There is, of course, a tragedy in that uh, Native Americans often lack particular enzymes to help them break down alcohol. That's the much more, much more susceptible to alcoholism. But it's okay because they got us back with smoking. So anyway, uh, that, of course, is a biological fact which you can't really do much about. So this is her argument that uh, property societies are vastly superior to uh, stagnant and uh, mindless and savage uh, hunter-gatherer societies. And that's why... You couldn't grant the rights of property in land to Native uh, Americans because they didn't have a concept of really of property in land. And, of course, you know, there's this old thing that the Natives use every part of a buffalo. That's complete nonsense. I mean, they didn't do anything of the sort. They, I mean, uh, they, they used very little of the buffalo. They drove massive amounts of buffalo off cliffs and then just ate a couple of them. And, I mean, it's all just, I mean, it's all, I mean, a lot of what you hear is all kinds of nonsense. It is a tragedy, of course, when... Uh, property societies run into hunter-gatherer societies. I mean, it's a mess. Property societies are generally far more technologically advanced, have far better weapons of of combat and so on. And, of course, a lot of the Native Americans were given, voluntarily, were traded traded the land away. And it wasn't all like Manhattan Island for a couple of beads. Um, There were significant uh, movements wherein uh, the, the Natives were paid for their right to their lands, and they understood, and they entered into contracts, and they were paid for it. And then, you know, they spent all the money and got drunk. And not all of them, of course. Some of them used it very wisely. But um, it wasn't just a massive uh, and uh, blood-filled conquest. Uh, there was a fair amount of trade that occurred. And um, so this is uh, where she's coming from. Whether you agree with the argument or not, I just sort of wanted to put it in context. Right. Drug use. Now, she was a... I mean, I don't think she... <laughs> I mean, walking down the street, I, I sort of view Ayn Rand as this sort of wizened Russian ancient troll of looking basically like a Pullman train with poof, poof, smoke going out of a head. She was a chain smoker, and uh, that, of course, has significant effects. Uh, and um, for those who don't know it, nicotine, of course, being a stimulant uh, that uh, oftentimes makes up for an unhappy childhood, right? So if you have what's called an adverse childhood experience score, that is, you can look this up. I've got a whole series on this called The Bomb in the Brain, fdrurl.com slash B-I-B. But basically, if you have a very bad childhood, you are far more likely to be a smoker, and Ayn Rand had a terrible childhood. So Ayn Rand was a habitual consumer of amphetamines starting in 1942 when she was prescribed Benzedrine for weight loss. And she was uh, under a deadline to finish the Fountainhead, and she just made massive progress when she had these uh, stimulants. And that is... 
a problem. Uh, and of course, in the long run, it um, produces a lot of the symptoms that people criticized her, and rightly so, I think, in the 1960s. Paranoia, irritability, and so on, right? So um, she was writing like a chapter a month on this stuff, whereas it had taken her years to write the first third of the novel. So from... Uh, 42 until at least 1972, which is 30 years, she continued to use amphetamines daily. She moved on to dexedrine and dexamil. Uh, This uh, is a drug addict, drug dependency for sure. And uh, she was concerned about her appearance and so on. And and she, she apparently, according to biographers, she gained weight easily. And of course, as a smoker, she wouldn't be all kinds of keen on exercise. And she actually quite loathed exercise. So because of the smoking, she generally didn't exercise. She liked to eat, she gained weight, and she um, was prescribed these uppers for weight loss. I consider that a tad lazy, you know, I mean, uh, but uh, this is, of course, with the benefit of hindsight. But the reality was that she was uh, a speed user for 30 years. So this is from the Objectivist Reference Center Biographical FAQ says, she took two pills per day until the early 1970s when another doctor told her to stop taking them. If you refer to any and all amphetamines as speed, then she did take speed, although it is probably not accurate to say that she was addicted to it. She certainly did not take the street drugs to which the term speed is more commonly applied. So she got her drugs through a prescription. Uh, It was a common medical practice at the time, uh, although... She did have uh, significant uh, opposition from her friends. Uh, Evidence from more impartial sources indicates that at times Rand used amphetamines heavily, at least heavily enough to cause her friends to be deeply concerned. One of them, a good friend of hers, the journalist Isabel Patterson, wrote to her, Stop taking that Benzedrine, you idiot. I don't care what excuse you have. Stop it. So uh, this is um, a reality. So uh, what is uh, what she took, also known as Benzedrine Speed, Go Fast, Cringe, Uppers, Bennies, Fat Powder, White, Whiz, Fettle, Throttle, and Bass, or as it's also known, the alternative incredibly fast group of Santa's reindeers. Dexedrine is called Uppers, Speed, Crank, Bennies, and Black Beauties. So there are symptoms of amphetamine addiction, irritability, mood swings, paranoia, and they did show up in her personal relationships, especially later in her life. So the members of, cult-like is a strong word, and I think people generally overuse the word cults. I mean, there's lots of people who genuinely suffer by being brainwashed, kept up for days, cutting their balls off, uh, being born into this, uh, being beaten, being programmed, and so on. People throw around the word cult pretty Loosely, and I think it's pretty exploitive of the real damage that genuine and dangerous cults do to people where you sign multi-generation um, uh, pacts and you give up 90% of your income or whatever. So anyway, so in a circle she assembled around her in New York, they were terrified of the fierce, bitingly cruel attacks she would unleash against any of them who disagreed with her. Even her devoted husband, Frank O'Connor, would sometimes be the target of her scorn. So Rand claimed, of course, to value rationality above all else and to live by the principles laid down in her novels. She wrote, I have always lived by the philosophy I present in my books, and it has worked for me as it works for my characters. She wrote in the afterward to Atlas Shrugged. And she violently denounced drug use by others, writing in one essay that drug addiction and so on, it is so obscene and evil that any doubt about the moral character of its practitioners is itself an obscenity. Uh, Yes, she may have overused the word obscenity from time to time. So um, that I think is hypocritical. I mean, but... She would not characterize her own consumption of uh, uppers as uh, drug abuse because it's a medical prescription, which was common at the time, and so on, right? So again, there's 
a differentiation. She was talking about basically people injecting heroin into their eyeballs or whatever. Now, she says that uh, she didn't fake reality in any manner. She was consistently devoted to reality. And uh, I've never tried it, but apparently, as anyone who has had the experience knows, a good way to get a really, really distorted sense of reality is to swallow a couple of dexedrins. If you want to take them anyway, don't go around bragging that you never fake reality in any manner. So this is uh, important stuff to remember. Okay, but again, back to rules for radicals. Why are we singling out Rand? French existential philosopher and noted menage a trois participant Jean-Paul Sartre was similarly dependent in the 1950s. Already exhausted from too much work on too little sleep, plus too much wine and cigarettes, the philosopher turned to Corydrain, a mix of amphetamines and aspirin that was then fashionable among Parisian students, intellectuals, and artists. The prescribed dose was one or two tablets in the morning and at noon. Sartre took 20 a day, beginning it with his morning coffee and slowly chewed one pill after another as he worked. For each tablet, he could produce a page or two of his second major philosophical work, The Critique of Dialectical Reason. Paul Erdos was one of the most brilliant and prolific mathematicians in the 20th century. As Paul Hoffman documents in a book, The Man Who Loved Only Numbers, Erdos was a fanatic workaholic who routinely put in 19-hour days, sleeping only a few hours a night. He owed his phenomenal stamina to espresso shots, caffeine tablets, and amphetamines. He took 10 to 20 milligrams of Benzedrine or Ritalin daily. So worried about his drug use, a friend of his once said, you can't even give this uh, stuff up for a month. So he took the bet and succeeded in quitting his drugs cold turkey for 30 days. When he came to collect his money, he told his friend, you showed me I'm not an addict, but I didn't get any work done. If I get up in the morning and just, I get, I'd get up in the morning and just stare at a blank piece of paper. I'd have no ideas, just like an ordinary person. You've set mathematics back a month. After the bet, he resumed his amphetamine habit. Uh, this does not have any bearing as to whether his mathematical arguments or Sartre's philosophical arguments are true or false. It is a methodology of working. You may disagree with the methodology of working, but it has no particular bearing on the validity of the arguments presented. So she had an affair uh, in her late 40s with Nathaniel Brandon, who I think was 24, with full consent of all parties. So uh, Nathaniel was married to a woman named Barbara, and uh, all four of them, Nathaniel, uh, Ayn, Barbara, and Frank, sat down and uh, they said, listen, we're gonna, we want to have an affair. Uh, everybody has to agree in order for it to occur, and so on. There was a horrible and acrimonious breakup after, I think, eight or so years. Uh, Nathaniel Brandon, following the dictates of base um, reproductive behavior, ended up um, breaking up with the close to 60-year-old Ayn Rand and taking up with a 24-year-old model. And this was uh, harsh and destructive and brutal. Uh, she, you know, when he broke up with her, she screamed epithets in him uh, and so on. Uh, and there was then this split, right, in the Randian circle, right? So you either went with Nathaniel Brandon or you stayed with uh, Ayn Rand and people who were on the wrong side were, quote, excommunicated. Now, this, none of this is the initiation of force. So, and of course, again, she's not a Christian, And so she says, I don't fake reality. So she said, I want an afternoon twice a week with Nathaniel Brandon uh, to have an affair. Uh, I'm putting this forward. Everyone agrees. Okay, then we're going to do it. That's a contract and it's voluntary. So again, it's not savory, but it's certainly not wrong. So with the fallout of the breakup, according to, again, I don't know how true this stuff is. I tend to believe it's true, but that's not proof. You had to sign a loyalty oath to Ayn Rand that you had nothing to do with Nathaniel Brandon and so on. Messy, ugly. 
vicious, ridiculous. Is this the result of, at that point, uh, close to 30 years of um, a speed use? No. But I think this is not proof, right? I just, this is what I think. Uh, she aimed to shrink the state. That, that was her major goal, was to promote the non-aggression principle, her, her vow, um, and to shrink the state. Um, according to some reports, Landa Peacock, her intellectual heir, was um, uh, believed that a year after the publication of Atlas Shrugged, most government interferences in the economy would have been dismantled because it was that persuasive a work. And it is a very persuasive work. Uh, and not just because she's an interesting and powerful writer, but because her arguments are very powerful and very strong. So she failed. I mean, she, she published this book in 1957. You know, 20, 30 years later, the government was much bigger. Uh, the the, the uh, Vietnam War had dragged on. The welfare state was massively increased. Uh, and Nixon went off the gold standard. Uh, there was stagflation, which according to Keynesian economics was impossible. Massive growth in the economy. Uh, significant inflation throughout the period. Uh, so her life's work failed and continues to fail. And not just a little bit, but spectacularly. Right. Not only has the government not shrunk, but it's hard to imagine that its growth has even slowed a tiny bit. So her life's work failed and continues to fail and enormously spectacularly. Now, when there's a huge failure, we must look at things critically and figure out what went wrong. And I'm sort of half and half about whether to do that here or later. But I don't know that she I don't think that she ever admitted that her life's work had failed and went back to review what went wrong. Very, very briefly, it's sort of a taster part four. What failed was that she believed that you could reason people into good thinking. But you can't reason people in... You can't reason people out of beliefs that they have not been reasoned into. And um, reason is not enough to change people's minds. It's not even close to enough. In fact, uh, studies have shown that counter-arguments tend to reinforce initial prior prejudice. So there's a huge amount of confirmation bias. There's a huge amount of after-the-fact reasoning justifying earlier beliefs. Uh, and this all comes out of, uh, in, in my argument, according to the experts and the research that I've done, this all comes out of childhood trauma. You can't reason people into better beliefs until they have a capacity to reason. Children who are traumatized can't very easily reason. It's enormously painful and difficult for them to reason. If I lose an arm in a shark attack, you can't reason me into regrowing my arm. If my brain is damaged in its development through abuse and neglect, you can't regrow the part of my brain that was damaged through words alone. doesn't mean it's impossible to change. There's neuroplasticity. I believe therapy, talk therapy with a great therapist is particularly powerful. But in things as basic as the growth of empathy, you can't reason people into developing what are called mirror neurons or empathetic parts of the brain that allow for empathy. Empathy is a complex system of about 13 parts of the brain all interacting. Uh, and it's not as common as we would like. It's the most scarce resource and the most essential resource in the world. The presence and existence of sociopaths, uh, not an insignificant proportion of the population. Um, we are not uh, one group of human beings with all the equal capacity to reason and the equal capacity to develop empathy and so on. There are significant numbers of people in the world one in 10, one in 20, depending on your estimates, you put them in front of a video and show them purposeful human torture and they giggle. Their happy centers light up. Their, their dopamine lights up. They are happy. 
uh, when other people suffer. And uh, so this, you, you can't reason, but this is a, that's a brain chemistry, developmental, and to a large degree, irreversible phenomenon. I mean, as far as sociopathy goes, I mean, the psychiatric and psychological profession try just about everything you can imagine. Dosing them with LSD, massive amounts of talk therapy, uh, punishment, ice baths, uh, empathy, love, uh, scream therapy. I mean, you name it. They've tried just about everything. Can't fix it. The part of the brain that fails to develop cannot be fixed later in life, according to any of the research that I've ever read. And so the idea that you could write a novel and fix evil, that you can make arguments and fix evil, is exactly the same as saying, I can talk you into regrowing your arm. Uh, It simply doesn't work that way. So I don't think that she admitted any error by not accounting and dealing with childhood and attempting to reason with everyone as if they had her capacity for rationality, which even she didn't have later on in life was, I think, her fundamental error and her fundamental problem. And um, when you want to change, everyone's impatient for change. I run into this with my listeners, uh, or maybe you're the same way too. I'm the same way too. Love to snap my fingers and have a better world. One of the things that comes out of uh, communism is this idea that you can have a new economic man, right? That if you change the economic environment of people, then you change their fundamental nature. So instead of seeking advantage and seeking profit, they will surrender themselves to the good of the community and so on. So if you want to change quickly, then you look for politics and education, right? Fundamentally, uh, if you want to change quickly, you either aim to pass and repeal laws, and as part of that or as an arm for that, or probably as a presage of that, you try to educate people into free market philosophies, rational thinking, um, ethics, and, and so on. So if you want to change quickly, it won't work. Because if human dysfunction is rooted in early childhood experiences, then you need to talk to parents. You need to get parents to do uh, better by their children, to not hit them, to not yell at them, to not intimidate them, to not neglect them, to hold them, to breastfeed them, to do all the things that are as proven to grow empathy as manure is proven to help agriculture. So you don't get to invent a new man through your arguments or through adjusting economic conditions. You don't get to change people's brains through arguments, politics, or an environment. You have to grow new human beings with the capacity to reason if you wish to reason with human beings. I think this is, to me, as scientifically established as anything can be in these fields. And because she barely talked about, there were no children in the circle that she had uh, in New York, and frankly, most of them were all related anyway. I mean, all second cousins and brothers and cousins and so on. So um, so she wanted change quickly. She wanted change in her lifetime, which meant she focused on politics. And like Murray Rothbard's alliance with the new left and so on, she got into Goldwater and Nixon and various other campaigns and so on. So she wanted to change things through politics. She wanted to change things through reason, through education and so on. And it didn't change. It didn't change got worse because she's ignoring the cause, which I think is, uh, and I think I have good reason for thinking that, is early childhood experiences. This is why I spend so much time on parenting and talking to parents and helping parents to understand how to parent better and so on. So she was in a hurry, and like the tortoise of the hare, if you're in a hurry to change the world, you will get nowhere because it's a multi-generational change and we need new kinds of people. And new kinds of people arise from different and more nurturing and more peaceful and more loving early childhood experiences. But we'll get more into that a little bit later. There's this idea that, and this was her idea explicitly, that emotions are value calculations, like instantaneous 
value calculations based upon prior thoughts. Now, there's some truth to this. Certainly what you think has a big effect on how you feel. But also there's lots of evidence that shows that you get a feeling first and then you start to think later. And this is particularly true for people without self-knowledge. So people have to become passionate for change. If it's true that all emotions slavishly follow your thinking, then if you change people's thinking, you will change their emotions. But there's a significant amount of evidence that shows this is not the case, that if you provide people information counter to their emotional preferences, you actually just reinforce those emotional preferences. And 30 years of drug dependency can have an effect on one's stability. So I go with uh, Voltaire's Candide uh, that you tend your own garden. You have peace and reason in your own life. You demonstrate its efficacy and value to, to others. You live a peaceful and rational life. And you encourage people to be more rational, of course. But you fundamentally recognize that it's an incremental, multi-generational change based upon philosophical and peaceful parenting more so than any other single factor. I don't have much to add. I just wanted to say thank you, everybody, so much for your enthusiasm and the positive responses to uh, this video series. We will be working on uh, part four, which is more of my specific philosophical objections to uh, objectivism, which are not huge, but significant enough that there is uh, an important deviation. FDRURL.com slash donate. This is a huge amount of work, as you can imagine. And um, I really, really appreciate everybody's support in helping to get the word of philosophy, reason, evidence, peaceful parenting, the value of science, and the free market out to the world as a whole. So thank you, everybody, so much for your support. Stefan Molyneux for Free Domain Radio. I'll talk to you soon.